substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to One of 200, Independent Media and Politics It's another Weekend Current Events episode We have a... I was going to include myself, but I'm going to call it a triple um, co-host threat this morning instead of quadruple. And now this is just already getting too long. I'm taking too long to describe this. How are you doing, Stephanie? I'm good. It's early, but I'm good. It is. It is. We've also got Paul. Got a first time in a in a little while. Glad to be back. Yeah. You've been a very busy guy. And we're joined for the first time in an even longer while. Jack McDonald, how are you doing? Great. Kia ora, Kyle. Kia ora, Koto. It's a pleasure to be with you all. I'm just going to let our audience, I'm going to trust our audience to just know who all of you are in this particular case, because you have all been on the podcast previously. I guess the one probably thing we need to be transparent about uh, is that everyone has been involved with the Green Party at some point. Most uh, compromised panel you could have pulled <laughs> together, Kyle. Let's be honest. Love your work, Kyle. <laughs> Look, sometimes in a country this small with resources are so tight, but luckily uh, the left here is just incredibly objective and happy to critique itself. I, I truly believe uh, in, in the power of our independence and objectivity, but we should be upfront uh, about those things. Uh, when we're going to discuss uh, Green Party stuff, which we will be doing in the latter half of this podcast, but this has been a crunchy week for the government parties, uh, and I wanted to quickly cover off some of the events. They've been hitting the headlines as well. Um, these are being covered because they're too ludicrous not to. And the first of those is Associate Minister for Health, Casey Costello. I think just outright lying. I think, like, that is... It's beyond implication at this point about asking her ministry for information about freezing the tax on cigarettes and then a whole bunch of stuff coming out about how she's connected potentially uh, to the tobacco industry. Some more information now more broadly public about some of the AstroTurf organizations that she used to work for, uh, which was already known, but did not get the same weight of coverage as some of the ACT Party list MPs who were too far down the list to get elected um, and got kicked out of the party during the 2023 campaign. Is this a bad look for the government panel? I think it's, I mean, if I want to, if I want to like put a pin in the big, like strategic take on all of this, I think it shows, I mean, one, no surprise, New Zealand first completely unprepared for actual government, but it also contrasts to me how these things work very differently in a vaguely functioning Westminster-style democracy versus the United States. Because when American politicians do this shit, they just lie. They just lie and try to distort reality around, oh, no, I never asked for that. Oh, maybe I asked for that, but I didn't personally write the note. Um, and somehow that that happens. But we have a vaguely functioning Official Information Act, and we have a vaguely functioning political media who can go, actually, but we can see the things you did and the things you said, and we can, when we're in a good mood, hold you to account for those things. And 
because New Zealand First's entire political strategy since their most recent resurgence has been based around that Trumpian American, just bluff your way through and it'll be fine. They do not know how to handle the fact that if we can see your signature on a document asking for advice, that means you asked for it, Minister. Yeah, it's pretty sad, really. That's initially how Costello, it seems like the the party itself is kind of hands off. Um, and and who wouldn't be? But Costello has tried to do that. Um, that we're still talking about it here at the end of the week. Um, and it's the same across the headlines as well. I, I found it, you know, we've had ministers ac- across the spectrum or MPs who, who do just try and lie about this stuff, who do get caught out and go, oh, I didn't realise, or like, oh, some, it was someone in my office who did that. Ah, oh, just a mistake. That, that's not a, an unheard of event, but it is a little more rare for a, an MP's linkages to uh, other political apparatus to start getting into the headlines in this Mm. way, or at least into the public consciousness. I mean, the left is very used to the fact uh, that if they've ever been in a union, they're going to come under sustained attack for that. But Costello's been high-standing member of a couple of really well-known astroturf groups and not very nice ones. Um, The thing that I find interesting about it is that uh, this really does highlight how deeply connected uh, this government um, across at least the National New Zealand First Parties are to the tobacco industry and how uncomfortable with that fact they are. You know, so um, the media have been kind of questioning various people, um, including Chris Bishop, who was obviously used to be a tobacco lobbyist. And when they put that to him and said, um, you know, uh, is this a line? I think it was a line about the coffee, about how coffee is, caffeine is just as dangerous as tobacco um, that Costello used. And then they put that to Bishop and he said, oh, I do not agree with your characterization of my my previous career. And, you know, it, it really shows, I think, that um, despite the fact they're also deeply connected to the tobacco industry, it's not something that's palatable to the New Zealand public. And so they have to backtrack away from it. I think it also highlights um, just how chaotic um, the start of this government has been. There's been absolutely no honeymoon period, um, particularly because of their outright assault on the treaty and on Māori rights. But And, and this is tied into that. Um, because, of course, the tobacco um, law that was passed was in part passed because of the um, uh, disproportionate impact on Māori communities of tobacco harm. And the outrage from Māori health professionals in particular has been one of the loudest. So uh, I think, yeah, it really does speak to the the broader um, context of um, the formation of this government. And so, you know, I think it, they couldn't have had a worse headache to start the parliamentary term with. Yeah, I'm really interested to see touching on that that point jack how and like you say the sort of nationals discomfort at, at you know their position um as to how much they kind of try to distance themselves from new zealand first and like you know assuming similar kind of scandals come up during the term with you know act ministers and so on how just how they try to distance themselves from their coalition partners and you know mm-hmm. how kind of i guess invulnerable the uh, ministers from the you know from the minor parties are in this government like i think we saw and the Labour New Zealand First government, like those New Zealand First ministers, pretty much like untouchable, you know, um, because of the the coalition agreement. So yeah, I haven't looked into a lot about this issue, but like that's you know I th- I think a, a thread that's even um, from the from the very I mean it's very early days of this government, but from the start of the government, the kind of the distance that Christopher Luxon is trying to put between himself and 
you know, with St. Peter's and, and the Acton New Zealand First Ministers, that's going to be an interesting thread because, I mean, he's going to have to own, you know, their, their policies and their, you know, the influences that lobby groups and so on have on them as ministers of, of his government. He's going to have to own that at some point. Um, but, yeah, that's that's going to be interesting how that develops and how, like, where he actually just draws the line with um, some of the stuff and if he does. And I, I just honestly, my most sarcastic immediate reaction was that Chris Bishop must be spewing because for a long time, if you're on the left and if you've been on Twitter, you have seen people constantly call out the fact that Chris Bishop is an ex-tobacco lobbyist, but it's never been something that's been taken seriously in a mainstream space. He's always done the bluff and bluster that's worked for him. And now Casey Costello has just blown up the whole strategy. And now everyone's like, oh, wait, this government's owned by the tobacco industry. Wow. Did we know about this? (laughs) And so... All of his bluff and bluster, and I, I guess that's possibly one where I feel sorry for Casey Costello because Chris Bishop has openly been a former tobacco lobbyist for his entire political career, and um, Winston would just get away with saying, don't show me my signature on a bit of paper, go away, you media hacks. So sorry, Casey, you're being held to account for tactics that um, other people, men, would get away with. And, and just to pick up on Paul's point, I think... The, the government, um, Chris Luxon, in particular the Prime Minister, is going to have to very quickly um, learn um, how to display leadership because um, if not, then, um, you know, it's really going to be, it's going to be a struggle for his government to survive because we've seen uh, with the Treaty Principles Bill and during the negotiations, the um, the willingness to compromise on that to David Seymour has really um, meant that his government has started off in a shambles and his response to that um, has been to um, put the bill um, under the responsibility, ministerial responsibility of David Seymour um, because of David Seymour throwing his toys. So he's kind of just digging his hole deeper. And I, and like Paul said, I think we're going to see that across ministers. Um, I think Karen Shaw, who's in charge of Otang and Tamariki, is another extremely weak link. Um, and I think we're going to see that um, unravel. So, yeah, I, I really think that, um, you know, we it's, it's, it's easy to be optimistic about these things, but I, I honestly do think there is a there is a decent chance of this being a one turn government if they don't actually shift very quickly um, and put in some discipline. Because for all of the faults of the previous government, even when they were under um, in a relationship with New Zealand First, Jacinda Ardern did show the ability to lead and um, to you know go toe to toe with someone like Winston. Which you know, if you've been watching Parliament over the last few days, you can see. Luxon floundering and Winston mouthing the answers to him um and so you know it's just it's just a shambles it's this really interesting little game that they're trying to play where they say oh no 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 it's MMP so we have to we have to give them the stuff you know we have to we have to give them the associate minister of justice and let them do a treaty principles bill uh can't help it that's just the nature of our democracy oh but MMP doesn't really exist uh, you know, they're just over there kind of doing their own thing and we're doing our own thing and we're really kind of separate entities. So that's just how it is. But everything that is done by New Zealand First and Act is under a national government. This is a national-led government. And I really hope that the gallery does frame it like that because it's been a consistent and over the last few decades framing for the National Party in particular to get away with pushing through some pretty radical uh, or extreme policy and just saying, ah, well, too bad we had to have ACT. Uh, Shouldn't have given them 1% of the vote or, you know, whatever it was during John Key's tenure. 
we just had to make charter schools. You know, we just had to do it. Uh, nothing to do with national, though. Nothing, nothing to do with national. We didn't make that decision somehow, uh, and it's not the responsibility of our government. You know, it's not part of our legacy. That's just that's just how the dice fell. Whoops. But it's you know that's not how politics really works. And it was a lack of strength during the coalition negotiations that got the National Party to this point. Like they just rolled over for <laughs> for so much of the stuff. And that, you know, that's not because David Seymour is a strong negotiator. You know, it's because Christopher Luxon won just weak as fuck. Like he's just not good at this shit. Like he's just had other people doing it for him his entire life. We, we know he's just an empty suit. That's been the entire intent um, and reason for him to be elevated to this position in the first place. And he's got a bunch of underlings like Bishop and Willis who are deeply, deeply compromised. You know, they are linked in so many ways to the wider framework, right-wing uh, corporates and think tanks. Uh, you know, we mentioned Bishop's previous um, role as a previous role as a tobacco lobbyist. Nicola Willis used to work for New Zealand Initiative. Uh, and They've got people in their offices, you know, like and the and Christopher Luxon's offices who who did similar. Like they're, they're rife. You know, so there are so many of these people across the entirety of the National Party apparatus who get value out of allowing ACT in New Zealand first to do these things. This is this is what they want to do. This is part of their political project. National is it's a, it's an entryist project, really reactionary elements, uh, have seen a, a way to push through some of these policies and not have to take responsibility for it is there anything else anyone uh wanted to add on those fine on that point before we move to the next topic i'll oh, just building on that point i also think it'll be really funny next time there's a government with either the greens or to party maori as a minor um player who can just say well sorry we get everything we want because that's mmp according to you national thanks yeah if only we had a labor party that wanted to do that i mean it could be a majority green minority to party maori government or vice versa i'm i'm happy with <laughs> another thing that we've seen this uh, like very similarly playing out in terms of the national uh mps or national government in general trying to claim like oh we can't, it's nothing to do with us like we can't help this is just the nature of reality is this promise made by the party um and made by nicola willis when talking about where cuts would be needed uh in order to fund you know, some of their pet policies, like tax cuts for the incredibly wealthy and for landlords. There'd been this kind of thing touted where they'd say, oh, I'll just be back off of staff, you know, and we know that's bullshit. We know that's not a real thing. That doesn't exist. Back off of staff is not a, a thing. Um, you, you can't cut back off of staff without affecting the front line at, at some level. Uh, but over and over again, they would have been heard to say there won't be frontline cuts. There are going to be no frontline cuts. And... They were leaning somewhat on the ACT Party again during coalition negotiations, who were being much more um, upfront about how much they wanted to cut. They're like, we're going to cut 15,000 jobs. Ha, 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 ha. Um, we're going to get rid of the bloat, you know, as if there's any bloat left in the public service, like, realistically, um, which has been chronically underfunded for 40 years or, or more. And, yeah, in the last couple of weeks, oops, we might have to make some frontline cuts uh, to to police and to teachers and to health professionals. 
So this is something that I take extremely personally because I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast before, Kyle, but I did run for parliament last election and I was opposite Nicola Willis in a dozen candidate meetings in Ohario, um, a seat she was desperately trying to take, even though it has the second highest proportion of public servants of any electorate. So maybe don't campaign on cutting the public service, Nicola. And so this question came up constantly because people were literally worried about their own jobs. It was like anti-pork barrel politics to be a pro-public service cuts National Party candidate in this electorate. And I kept saying exactly what you just said. You can't just cut back office functions. That means the front line, this isn't a visual medium, no one can see my scare quotes, but I'm doing them. Um, It just means that frontline customer-facing staff have more work to do. I even have, and I may have shared it on the pod, I'm not sure, but a very personal story involving my child being in hospital related to this, i.e. the short version. We didn't get out of hospital until 5.30 the day she was discharged because a doctor had to type up the discharge letter because we got rid of all those pesky back office admin people because, you know, they weren't doing real work. And that doctor was there past the end of his shift. I have told that story multiple times in front of Nicola Willis. So even though it's not surprising, even though we all know this is how it happens, I now take it very personally. And I'm now even more cynical about the reasons that the National Party do things like this, because it's not ignorance. It's not, oh, we have a difference of opinion. And it's not, and I'm just going to say, fellow lefties, please stop crapping on Nicola Willis for having an English literature degree, because one, they're great degrees, and two, that's not why she's a bad minister of finance. She is making these choices deliberately. She wants to cut the public service. National and ACT want to cut the public service because they fundamentally don't believe in the concept of a public service. They think everything should be run for a profit for their mates. It is actually as simple as that, and I will never stop being irked just to drag us screaming into the media analysis portion of this that reporters just journalists just sat there and let Nicola Willis say of course we're not going to cut the front line of course we're just going to cut the bloat and even if they did ask once where is that coming from they still accepted oh well we'll we'll just get the CEs to do line by line checks of their budgets it's absolute nonsense and the fact that anyone was supposed to take it seriously is a blight on our politics Absolutely. And just picking up on your point, Stephanie, around the media, that was in spite of the fact that independent analysts like those in the union movement were highlighting the fact that even if you know, even if you accept that back office functions are a thing and you talk about comm staff or policy research staff, even if you were to um, essentially, the analysis showed that you would have to move into frontline staff across a range of departments that they said they weren't going to touch, um, including ones that even they vaguely care about, like, you know, intelligence and customs and defense. So, um, and, and you know, we're now seeing that the extent of the cuts goes so deep that it's going to really start to corrode a democracy as well, whether it's, you know, cuts to the parliamentary service, the office of the clerk, um, the courts, um, which is probably more important than, than most. Uh, and so, you know, their lack of regard for really a functioning civil society um, is so clear. And, you know, it, but it, it is also um, beyond the pale that people let them get away with that lie. And it was just so obviously a lie at the time. And, you know, this is all in the name of funding tax cuts for the rich. And so it really just does speak to the heart 
of their ideological agenda. Um, yeah, and I think you're both totally right. And it reminds me a lot of when uh, John Key promised not to raise GST before the 2008 election, and then immediately uh, they did it to fund you know income tax cuts for the top earners. And this is what they do, right? Like like you said, Stephanie, uh, they have an agenda um, and they implement it. And it's for their their constituents, their people that fund them, uh, fund their campaigns. Um, and that's, that's how it works. Um, and the thing that kind of sort of irritates me in a way is that the left generally don't do the same thing. Um, like they don't, they don't seem to really go onto bat for the union movement and, you know, the workers and the people that, um, are out on the streets for those causes. Um, they go in and, you know, like, um, a lot of the top labor ministers, um, in the last, uh, labor government. And they try to play the same game that national play around the public service, right? Like, you know, for example, um, basically underfunding the public service as well, just a bit more, you know, a bit less severely and a, and a bit more sort of slowly. But, you know, the, you know, teachers uh, and nurses and so on have been crying out across um, the Labour government um, for more funding. Um, and they just keep playing that game and it just allows national to come in uh, and, you know, then we really get down to the bare bones and then they start cutting, um, you know, into, like you said, Jack, that they don't have much more to much more back office functions to cut. So they have to come into frontline services and, and um, those things that really erode our, you know, our, our society. So, yeah, I think there's some um, blame to be shared in this. And in some ways, I don't think we can, I mean, you know, we should fight against right-wing politicians, but I don't think we can necessarily be surprised when they implement the agenda that they're, always going to implement yeah and i i think we cannot forget that the last labor government instituted a pay freeze across the public service and then denied it was a pay freeze even though they preemptively set up Ginny anderson their mp with the strongest uh family union ties to ask a question in the house about why the psa should sit down and shut up basically um the psa just random fact has ninety thousand members now wouldn't it be great if they got more hint hint to any public servants listening um go join your union please because honestly so yeah and Exactly as you say, Paul, the problem is, is if, if Labour are going to buy into the idea that the public service needs to be a lean, mean, efficient, run like a business machine, that simply opens up the ground for National to do horrible swinging cuts, as we are seeing them do. So, yeah, um, could could the left, uh, mainly the Labour Party, do better? Thanks. Please and thank you. And, you know, it's the same kind of ideological framework or strategies being applied uh, now in relation to minimum wage raises. And just in a really nasty, grasping kind of way uh, by Brooke Van Belden, who has been made the Workplace Relations and Safety Minister. What a horrible thing for the National Party to do, to make the ACT Party responsible for this shit. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. We all knew this was going to be a bad government. Um, we all knew that it was going to be a right-wing, conservative, fringe weirdo lurch, but it was not until the ministerial list came out and I saw Brooke Van Velden, Minister of Workplace Relations and Safety, that I actually almost cried because I was like, oh, that's how bad it's going to be. Great. Yeah, I, I think with the minimum wage, and again, Labour should have done more, but the, the fact I'd like to bring to the table is that the living wage campaigns, living wage for 23, 24, is $26 an hour. So frankly, anything under that is the government and the community and taxpayers 
subsidizing bad businesses who aren't paying people enough to live on. And it, it's unequivocal. Every single study ever done by competent, non-ideologically right-wing people shows that the minimum wage increasing does not lose jobs. It does not hurt businesses. It's actually better for businesses when people can afford your goods and services. Whoa. Um, and if you're already paying people better than that, it stops you being undercut by crappy competitors. So it's just another one of these things where we all know what the objective reality is, but we just are going to be living in this fantasy land for three years of penny-pinching, awful Brooke Van Velden nonsense. Boo. And just to add to that, um, as I'm sure um, people listening to this podcast probably already know, but um, you know, not only is it not reaching nearly the level of of the living wage, um, which is calculated on the basis of the cost of living and what um, people actually need to afford to live decent lives, um, but it is also actually a real terms cut because um, it's not keeping up with the pace of inflation. And so um, I think this is one of the biggest real terms cuts um, to the minimum wage um, since annual increases to the minimum wage began. And, um, you know, it really speaks to the... Um, well, like 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 Stephanie just said to this penny pinching government, but um, to me, to be honest, like this is one of the things that uh, just didn't surprise me. Like, but at the same time, it was kind of funny to see um, MB being more progressive than the government um, and, and recommending a four percent rise when Van Velden recommended a one point three percent rise. And then I, what I assume happened is that probably New Zealand first ministers. Um, got it up to two percent because they do um, vaguely care about the minimum wage, but um, yeah, um, I, I think it really um, it really shows how bad things are when um, the Ministry of Business, um, Economic Development, Employment, or whatever they're called, um, are seen as more progressive than than the government. It's so barefaced, you know. We know the ACT Party would just want to get rid of the minimum wage altogether, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, bring back slaves or whatever, you know. Like this is what they're keen for. They no no workplace relations legislation. You can do what you want because it's your capital, and you know people just should be able to compete in the market to work under you. But to just go to the fucking cabinet table and having been given the uh, recommendation that it needs to be at four percent to keep up with inflation and go, oh, I actually think one point three percent. You're just being a really nasty like ideological vehicle like at, at that point yeah it, you may as well just be saying scrap the minimum wage and again this is stuff you know the national government could have just said no she you know it's the cabinet making the decision it's not the it's not the minister this is a national party decision uh and a national party led government to make some of the biggest cuts to the minimum wage uh that we've that we've ever seen it's yeah and but it has again. It's been pitched as like, oh, it's it's an act thing. Oh well, like that was going to happen. Yeah, I mean it was. But Christopher Luxon is responsible for that. With all that out of the way, all the all the bad shit, and you know this stuff is going to continue for the next three years. I I want to be very clear about that. And it's going to get worse because there's a whole apparatus out there which is beavering away, uh, trying to create division and make people mad, um, and. Uh, get some of this really classist and racist and sexist stuff um, into the public discourse uh, so that they can really tear a bunch of policy out um, and and destroy the public service as much as possible. You know, this is very, very clear. And Jack, you mentioned the 
uh, treaty stuff earlier. That's going to be a, a really a really big example um, of, of that over the next uh, twelve months, um, at the very least. But we wouldn't be independent uh, if we didn't also talk about left wing politics. Uh, we all know right wing politics is bad, <laughs> but what about those left wingers, huh? Big news this week uh, with James Shaw, the co-leader of the Green Party. He's been the co-leader for uh, 11 years or something. Nine years, I think he did. Nine years. Thank you. See, it's important that other people with Green Party affiliations are on the podcast because they can get this stuff right. I looked um, it up. <laughs> uh, has announced his intention to stand down from the co-leadership uh, and I assume uh, leave Parliament, which... You know, immediately started people talking about, okay, who's going to replace him as the co-leader? Chloe Swarbrick is immediately floated, uh, probably one of the more, if not the most popular green politicians um, among the electorate, uh, and announced on Friday morning that she'll be running uh, for that co-leader role, which is to be filled by the 10th of March. Really... I think, interesting times for Green Party politics. But let's kick off this section of the conversation with what do we think of James Shaw's legacy? Well, I think he um, he's always said, and this is why a lot of people said it's an open secret he's leaving. I don't think that's true. I just think it was a really obvious point where the odds of him leaving were increased. First day back at Parliament after an election, and he's always said... He wanted to lead the Greens into government and out the other side, and he's unequivocally done that. He's done that in a way that increased um, Green Party votes and the size of the Green Party caucus, largest ever, 15 MPs. So, I mean, yeah, at that point, you've been Minister for Climate Change for two terms, and uh, you're seeing a government come in that's going to not do that. Um Going early in the term gives the new co-leader and the new co-leader team time to bed in and build their strategies to continue building the party. I think it was just kind of logical um, and good to kind of signal it in advance. And yeah, I, I kind of called it, so I'm just a bit smug about that. Well, um, I was just going to say that. I mean, I've I joined the Greens um, back in twenty after the 2014 election, so that was just uh, just before James was actually elected leader. So I guess. Having spent the last what what year nine years, I think it's important for us to focus at this time on on his politics. Um, and I mean, I hate that word legacy, Carl. I'll, I'll just say it. But like, and what what his politics has achieved for the Greens or not achieved for the Greens, and you know what his resignation means for like the direction of the party, and 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 like you said, the left more broadly. And we've had like a week of hagiography around um james and um you know his ability to compromise and work across the aisle and blah 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 but i think you know he's been a well-paid politician for a long time and i think it would be remiss of us to not soberly analyze um his politics and so for, for me it comes down to two two kind of main points that i want to make and they both sort of relate or each of them relate to these like false dichotomies that we see often in the media um and you know we've seen more than ever this week um the first one is around this whole idea of like the social justice versus environmental wings of the green party which is like a complete oversimplification of the kind of different groupings within the party um and i think in terms of how the media deploy this 
narrative, it's just actually deployed really in the wrong way around James. So like in the last couple of years in particular, when discontent around James's leadership um, has kind of boiled over, you know, the media will often talk about that it's like the social justice wing wanting the party to, you know, be more uh, kind of utopian. Um, and it's, you know, just activists that are like disgruntled that he wasn't promoting, you know, social policies um, more sort of intensely. But, you know, I was in a lot of those conversations uh, around the time that his his leadership was, well, he was he was basically removed as, as co-leader. He was removed as co-leader in 2022. And a lot of the discontent actually centered around his approach to climate policy and environmental policy uh, and his work as, you know, Minister for Climate Change uh, and how that kind of uh, conflicted with um, the Green Party's ideas around um, and and kind of ambitions around uh, those areas. So, you know, he's a green capitalist. Like, that's that's his approach. And I don't think that's really a secret. Like, he wouldn't necessarily use that word, but he believes that markets and for-profit enterprise... Yeah, so he believes that markets and for-profit enterprise is the best way to fix the planet or at least the only like politically achievable one. Right. Um, and even he did an interview with stuff when he was, you know, after he resigned and he said that, um, and I found this quite like appropriate really, but he said that what he wanted to do is have the biggest impact in his, in his next kind of role and the, on, you know, the climate crisis and the way that he could do that, that he felt was by focusing on uh, the capital flows from uh, the fossil fuel sector and, you know, putting them into the green economy. So, like, he believes in that stuff, right? And that brings me to the second false dichotomy um, point that I want to make. And then I'll pass over to you guys because I've been ranting for a long time. But I think this is, this is like, the heart of his um, theory of change, right? And, it's, you know, there's this dichotomy around pragmatism versus idealism. And James is all about working across the aisle. We've heard about this all week. You know, he's worked across the aisle with National to get things done. The Zero Carbon Act has been his legacy. Uh, and, you know, it's his relationships with labor and government that's got things done. But I think we really need to ask ourselves, like, what has this achieved, right? Like, what has the Zero Carbon Act actually done? So, and he's, he's claiming it as a win that National... Uh, have um, you know have said that they'll keep the zero carbon act and it's their kind of guide um, and they just are, are approaching meeting those targets um, a different way right but even before the 2023 election um, under his watch as climate minister and the budgets that the emissions budgets that he said those that government's policies weren't actually going to see us meet those budgets that he said so we already were going to fail to meet those you know, targets and the budgets that he set. So all these world first laws and targets and budgets and so on, like it's all meaningless niceties if we don't actually implement the policies that's going to change the real world conditions, right? It's going to transform the economy. It's going to bring emissions down. It's going to repair the environment and so on. And so, yeah, I I might just leave it there um, because I've been ranting for a long time, but like it's it's this um, this idea of compromise, you know, and to to achieve these kind of these outcomes on paper that I think is the is the key issue. And um I guess as a good segue, uh in Chloe Swarbrick's um speech when she announced her candidacy, I thought was quite a fitting departure from this approach. Like she really took it to Labour and uh she talked about a green majority government. And like you said earlier, Stephanie, James has often often been focusing on, you know, a nine year work program and taking the Greens into government and out the other side. 
that to me is very much like a minor party approach, right? Like, yeah, he's, he seems content with the Green Party joining government and joining a Labour-led government and sort of tinkering on the edges, whereas Chloe seems to have quite a different agenda. So I'll leave it there and pass it over to you guys. But um, yeah, end rant. Hilda Paul, and, um, you know, it won't be surprising that I agree with everything you said. Um, but like you, um, I could rant about these things for a long time, um, which I won't do. I think, at least speaking for the time when I was still um, active in the Greens and um, and part of the Green Left, I think one thing that we did at that time was was underestimate James Shaw as a politician, to be perfectly honest. And um, I think the reaction that we're seeing to his res- resignation is testament to that. Um, he has really comprehensively won the narrative um, around um, around climate action, but also around um, how to be an effective Green Party leader. Um, and like I think the media, um, he's been he's he's been very effective at um, working the media, and he's close with with a lot of them. Um, but also, you know, we've seen so many too many of the progressive left who have really just completely. Uh, bought into that narrative and any criticism of him is just dismissed as someone being pissed off um, that he wears a suit, um, which is so facile, um, but um, really speaks to how effective he's actually been. Uh, and so, you know, I think the, the the saddest thing about that is the opportunities that have been squandered, like you were talking about in terms of climate action more than anything um, over the last nine years, which, you know, have been a critical nine years in terms of our domestic um, action on climate change. You know, I think speaking to what you had started to talk about as well, in terms of where the leadership and the Green Party heads after this, I think a critical test is going to be how that is rectified, in my view. How, you know, and to be the, the other point that I just wanted to quickly make is that, you know, there's also this narrative that everything um, that the Green Party has achieved has been a result of James's leadership. Um, when really it's been in spite of that, in my view, both in my time in the party and is now more of a outside person looking in. Uh, you know, it's been the result of an incredibly strong party process, um, an incredibly strong movement. Um, some really awesome women politicians in particular and Wahine Māori politicians in particular who have carried that movement over his time um, in the party. And he, he he's kind of just attached himself to that. And, you know, many of the, many of the, the policies... Um, that are the most popular in the Greens. He has either actively uh, or, you know, kind of more subtly undermined and tried to resist in many ways. And so, you know, one of the things that I've also been surprised about is, you know, the Green Party hasn't moved nearly as far to the centre as I was worried that it was going to be. But that's in spite of James Shaw, not because of him. And so I think I was, um, you know, I imagine we're about to start talking about the leadership contest. And I just want to say... Um, that I was, like Paul, um, really pleased, at least initially, with um, my initial reactions to Chloe Swarbrick's um, speech announcing her candidacy. Um, I think, you know, there needs to be a solid departure from James's leadership. And I think that will be the real test for Chloe from um, a policy and moral point of view, not a political point of view necessarily, but a policy and moral point of view is, um, you know, what kind of radical ambition is she going to have for um, the movement and for action on climate and you know or is she really going to because she also made a few comments that did that did validate James's approach um, in terms of compromise and getting policies that survive government um, even though 
the National Party has already indicated and announced that they're going to they're going to weaken the Zero Carbon Act um, even further. Um, it's already toothless. They're going to weaken it even further. So really, does that argument even uh, work? In my view, not really. So anyway, that'll be the test moving forward. Kia ora. So I just had one other thing I wanted to add for James's legacy. And yeah, as I say, I think Kyle is chomping at the bit to make us segue into the leadership competitions. This will get us there, Kyle, don't worry. The the part of James's legacy that I, I am happy to close the door on, and this isn't a James criticism. This is a broader social misogyny criticism. Because as someone who's worked in Parliament, worked in the Green uh, team, I spent a number of years with a couple of columns on my tweet deck looking at mentions specifically of Marama and of Goldries and uh, of the Greens Twitter account itself. And there is just this repeated pattern of the worst people on the internet every time, particularly Marama or Goldries for reasons that we can all figure out, would say anything progressive or do anything a bit radical or swear publicly or attend a Palestine rally. And the the little swarm of haters who would start tagging in James to their tweets to be like, are you going to denounce this, James? Does your co-leader at James P.E. Sean agree with your statements here? And it was just such massive, you wait till your dad gets home energy. And I know that this is not something that James would ever have wanted or encouraged. I personally wish he had at some point clapped back a bit loudly to say, I'm not their dad. Grow up and stop dobbing in brown women to me. Um, But if we are, as seems the likeliest, going to end up with two women co-leaders of the party, it's going to be really funny with those awful people having nowhere to turn to and no white man in a suit to project their conservatism on um to what extent uh we actually think james is pretty conservative for a white man in a suit i just think he likes wearing suits i don't think i've ever seen that man in casual gear some guys are like that i think university does it to them but i will really look forward to not having that that division that goes pre marama and james as well where we've had this uh long-running tradition of a wahine Māori and a white male co-leader, and the white male co-leader does all of the economic and intelligence and big, serious international relations stuff, and the wahine Māori does all of the social development and housing and alleviating poverty stuff. Because, honestly, both Marama and James can talk very fluently on any of those issues. So the dismantling that weird little intersectional bullshit dichotomy we've had is something I'm looking forward to. And again, not James's fault that he's a white man. Um, not going to ask him to apologize for it because we all know where that goes in New Zealand politics, but it's just a a facet that we are hopefully moving away from. Yeah. And I, I was actually going to raise the same thing. Like he's become a totem of a particular kind of liberal politics, right? Uh, And I think one of the worst things about that uh, for left politics in the country is that, and, you know, you might agree with this or not, but I I think this is true. I'm sorry if I piss anyone off by saying this, but for the last nine years, well, especially since Materia Today uh, was forced out, as far as the political and media landscape was concerned, James Shaw was the leader of the Green Party. Marama, as you said, Stephanie would kind of get called in to do some specific announcements about uh, social policy. Uh, and I think she's 
always been fantastic on the ground, um, and especially when she shows up uh, in activist spaces. You know, I like I, I have no beef with with Marama over this stuff. It's just the way that that co leadership has been treated is to place her on the second rundown, and in large part, it is because of that totemism um, of Shaw being a guy in a suit, um, a serious a serious guy. Uh, think talking about serious stuff and this is why anyone votes for the green party and you were mentioning social media but you see this play out every fucking day people say oh i like this person but why do they keep marimar around you know um and just really racist and sexist nasty stuff mm. so uh, two things to springboard off that one is that the number of people who over the past few years i've seen insist that it should be a james and chloe leadership team and it's like that's just racism you are just being racist right now there, there is no reason why a james chloe co-leadership is superior in any way to a chloe marama leadership um but i also just wanted to tie up a whole bunch of thoughts i have very briefly hopefully um which is how much of this is about media narrative and social narrative and so obviously james is not in the left 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 wing of the party at all but you can still see him speak very fluently and very eloquently on the more progressive policies that the party got through you know he wasn't spending the election campaign grumbling about people talking about a wealth tax. He was speaking as enthusiastically as he needed to about wealth tax and income guarantee and rental caps. But even now that he is leaving, we are seeing this like extinction burst of narrative of maybe he'll go and form a real blue-greens party. The, the desperation to push the Greens to be centrist, to to be pro-capitalist, to um, Jason Wall's asking a question about whether the party will lurch to the left. And it's like, Jason, were you spending any attention on the election campaign we just had? Because we ran a pretty left-wing campaign. To an extent, it doesn't matter what James's own opinions are because the swirling projection around him is white man suit, therefore safe. And what's interesting is that I know the exact same thing happened to Julianne when she and Marama were both running for the female co-leadership position. And it's something that I know annoyed her, that people were immediately like, ah, white, American, transport nerd, therefore safe, conservative, middle ground pair of hands who'd be happy to deal with the National Party, which is very much not Jack. So, yeah, it's I'm really happy in a way like, you know, I'm going to say I'm happy James is leaving because it does mean that people are going to have to work a lot harder to push this line that the Greens can only be successful if they embrace right-wing politics. Yeah. The Greens should only be an environmental party. Well, too bad now. Uh you you can say it's definitely. I'm I'm happy James is leaving. <laughs> well, on um I guess the final thing I just want to say about Sure, and his politics um, to move us into the, you know, uh, what's the future of the Green Party look like conversation is that, and, and this is, you know, this is stuff that's basically on record and James has said to my face, uh, but his theory of power and theory of change are completely defunct. Um, I, it is the thing I've struggled with more than anything else about how he has attempted to lead and direct the party. Um, and, you know, there's been some mention uh, today around the way he kind of get, gets in the way of stuff. But he, I remember asking him about workers' movements sometime in the last couple of years and how we're seeing like a revitalization of them across the Western world in terms of unions and, and the like. And he turned around and just said, nah, 
like New Zealand exceptionalism, essentially. Uh, what's happening overseas isn't really, uh, isn't, won't necessarily happen here, so I'm not even going to consider it. I'm not going to consider um, how the Greens should interact uh, with unions or if we should be trying to take that spot from Labour. And alongside that is this belief, which I've heard him discuss multiple times, that the people who don't vote aren't a legitimate electoral target. Um, this belief that he's going to have to pull people from the centre, carve people off from the left of Labour, and that means that the Greens need to be running that, like walking that line, instead of trying to engage with uh, people who are disenfranchised um, or less likely to vote for for other reasons or less able to vote. And it just it just speaks to a, an incredibly poor understanding about how electoral politics works to me. And you know, in terms of like the the zero sum always competing uh, with other parties. And, you know, this means that he's also competing with National and ACT for those uh, votes as well. Uh, and it pushes, and in the Westminster, Western liberal democracy uh, system, it pushes people to be more conservative because they always think they're having to compete uh, with a party to their right. You know, it never goes the other way around. Labour never competes to the left and National never competes to the left. Uh, we, we see this drag across the entirety of Western society. So to come at politics believing that you can't go and find new voters, that you have to move right or centre, or I, look, I don't think the Greens are a particularly left-wing party. I'm not sure that's a secret. Um, so move right uh, in order to grow the vote is both just prima facie incorrect, but has been shown to be incredibly incorrect as far as the Greens' electoral um, hopes under James Shaw until this current election where they went left. One of the things that is often forgotten, but Philip will give me a kick if I don't mention it, is that Shaw got elected to the co-leadership saying that he was going to quadruple the size of the party, I think, uh, and just has absolutely failed at that. And to, in terms of the membership, that, that is. He, he was never really able to do that. The uh, strategy ended up being to target high-value uh, members and donors. And anyone who's had anything to do with the Green Party as a member or kind of in that orbit knows this is the case through the way that donations um, are solicited. You know, they're, they're not targeting mass membership uh, donation model. They're targeting frequent high high number donations from a specific subset of society. And look, that's great. Like get get that get that money. Uh, but if you're gonna be targeting people with money, your policy is going to start moving in a specific direction. And the Greens have really suffered from not being able to grow their membership on the ground. And I think that was another part of Chloe's speech on Friday, which I was like, okay, this is this is a significant shift. And I I don't think anyone's really grasped it. Um, but when she was talking about growing the party, like she just she just outright said it, we need to grow the party on the ground. Because she has seen how that worked for her in Auckland Central, having engaged volunteers, 
who can't necessarily like fill your coffers, but who will get out there and door knock for you, who will build networks, who will go and run for local boards, who will become counselors, who will work across society and not just um, give you, you know, $200 a week out of their eco, eco business, um, whatever that might be, has far more impact for your electoral hopes and for your direction as a movement and for your growth as a movement than trying to funnel capital flows into the party, which I think has been the specific and overwhelmingly uh, the goal of, of Shaw's tenure. So do we think anyone's going to run? Oh, were you going to say something extra, Paul? I guess just to, yeah, I mean, pick up on a couple of those points. I mean, for, to answer your last question first, no, I don't think anyone else is going to run. Um, I think, yeah, I think a, a number of... Um, of the other current sitting MPs have already ruled it out. And yeah, I'd be extremely surprised if anyone else um, challenges um, Chloe. And I think Vernon Tava from the ropes coming back in. (laughs) He's probably a national member now, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, I guess to your point around uh, donations and so on, anyone who's on uh, a green party mailing list will know that they also canvass very regularly for small donations. So I think it's necessarily like, I, I, I agree with your broader point that, uh, James, you know, appeals to a, a particular kind of theory of change, and it's not building a mass movement. I think that's that's broadly true. Um, but you know, the Greens, in my experience, at least, still like there's still elements of, despite James's um, direction, trying to foster that kind of mass membership party and build donations that way. Oh, I know from uh, the branches as well, and you know, and there are yeah. several like specific MPs who very clearly want that to happen. Yeah, 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 totally. But yeah, I think, you know, like you say, the the direction that the party heads in now will be important. And like Jack said earlier, you know, there's there's a the test is forthcoming, right? We don't know, like Chloe's uh, given some good indications in her candidacy uh, and assuming she becomes co-leader um, alongside Marama, then uh, the proof will be in the pudding in terms of the direction that the party goes in. And I think that it's really important, like, when the when the tough decisions come along uh what way uh the new leadership team goes you know when it comes to forming government like if there's an opportunity to form government with labor like is there a fundamental shift in how the party negotiates with labor um because that's that's been a key um point with james is that he wants to be in government by default right and it's just like he'll do whatever it takes to achieve that um and policy can you know policy wins are you know in the background uh and and ministerial positions are the thing that you know he he wanted um and i think he you know particularly towards the end he was quite open that uh he actually really wanted to be in cabinet and um despite the greens shifting to the left um in terms of you know a lot of their policy agenda in 2023 the negotiating position was still you know, well, actually, I think um, it was it was subtly more aggressive, I guess, or assertive, um, particularly once the prime ministership changed from Aden to Hipkins. But it was still founded on the Greens are going to get into cabinet, and that's how we're going to deliver change. Uh, so, so that I think will be a real, um, yeah, the real challenge for uh, a Chloe and Marama leadership is how they negotiate with Labour if the opportunity arises in in twenty twenty six. 
Yeah, and I I completely agree with uh, Paul. And I think one big strength that Chloe brings <clears throat> um, on the list of big strengths that Chloe will bring to the co-leadership, because let's just talk as though she's going to win, because I'd be deeply surprised if anyone else runs against her, is in her time as an MP, she's seen huge success doing things not as a minister. Like she's run really good campaigns. She's built a lot of support. She's managed to get her, well, I'm not going to say get her name out there. She has always been the highest profile Green MP because she came in as a former superstar Auckland mayoral candidate. She's always had the highest uh, social media impact. She's always um, been good at getting herself both the um, hard media and the soft media but she understands how there are levers you can pull that aren't cabinet table levers. Cabinet table levers are pretty sweet levers, but if that's the only way you perceive power happening in Parliament, then I think you're leaving a lot on the table, um, and I don't think Chloe will do that. And, yeah, she's, you know, she's set the standard, I think, for really heavily people-run flex roots campaigns um i'm i'm pretty sure that both tamitha and julianne would say that they learned a lot uh in campaigning for their seats from how chloe campaigned in auckland central i know i myself was um writing postcards for uh tamitha's campaign to drop off at apartment buildings because that's a thing that um chloe in her first campaign did really heavily um in order to reach people who you simply can't door knock because you can't get into their building i think it will be very interesting what the approach is and I think it, it kind of has to be a bit harder line because even James himself went harder line um, on Labour specifically on Hipkins because I think he could see that Hipkins would be a far uh, less fun Prime Minister to negotiate with uh, than Jacinda was because um, despite her political theory of change being garbage her principles were much better than Hipkins's but you're just going back to whether someone else will run I don't think they will and I think that's a pity and I'm pretty sure I said this on uh the pod when uh, James had the reopen nominations vote against him I just like contested elections it's nothing to do with having any doubt of Chloe. It's just that I think when you have a contest, when people are all able to not just make a speech about what they stand for, but you can see them under pressure, under questioning, when they've actually got someone to bounce off um, how well they do. And just to completely swerve away from being a Green Party hack, one of the reasons I say this is because I'm a former Labour Party hack. And what we saw... <laughs> In the two leadership elections, um, which returned David Cunliffe and Andrew Little, is when you had more of a contested leadership election, what it did was, A, get the Labour Party in the news every single night of the week. Um, B, it meant you had some of your most senior politicians all presenting different perspectives on the same mission. And so it also demonstrated that you had depth, that you had options, that there were multiple people who could stand up and speak eloquently about what they want for the country. Um, they obviously completely screwed the pooch after both Cunliffe and Little were elected, but that's because no one gave me a job. Um, and I just think it really... I'm pretty sure I'm remembering correctly that Labour's polling went up during those campaigns because people were getting more attention on Labour Party policies and principles. And it just means you've got more of a proving ground and any suggestion that it's just an anoint, anointment, anointion, anointcy. No, I don't no, know no what anointion. the word for anointing someone is. Um, 
but because often when the anointment happens, it doesn't go well if we look at, say, Phil Goff and David Shearer. Um, and the one exception to this, obviously, that we have to call out is Jacinda, because you couldn't do a full leadership election uh, eight weeks out from an election, and no one was going to run against her either. So I think Chloe is absolutely in with a grin, um, and very deservedly so. She is the most high profile. She's got charisma. She speaks incredibly well. She's got the experience. But I do think it would actually be better for the party if someone else put their hand up and said, look, it's not a done deal. We can have a a proper debate of ideas um, and people will like it when we do. I'm always um, really keen on the left showing that they can disagree in a really useful and structured way. Um, I think it's somewhere just broadly that the political left here has failed miserably on for a long time. It's why one of 200 exists, um, is to try and do that better. Uh, and so I agree with you on that point, Stephanie. I think, you know, I, I someone has to have the, have to be very, or would I have to be someone with an ego? And I don't want that. Or someone who knows they're not going in this with a good chance to win, but is confident enough in their purpose. Uh, you know, I think there are a lot of people in the Greens like that. Uh, it would be nice to see. I, I don't expect it to happen. I think as much as anything else, the Greens will like, it's a hassle. It'll take off our ability to hold the national government to account if we're doing this um, kind of little showgrounds. But also it would kind of be great. Like, I want more attention on that. Like, give us something good, please. There's lots of bad stuff out there. You could, Like, you can do both. Why, why don't you hold them to account while you're on the stage debating with each other? There's a lot of good profile raising that could happen. Um, and although, you know, although Chloe's got the highest profile of all the Green MPs, she's, and, you know, she shows up on the preferred prime minister above the co-leaders, I think there's still a lot of people who don't necessarily know her. Uh, and a chance to do that during a leadership series would would help everyone. Uh, so I just wanted to say, like, obviously, you know, as someone who hasn't been in the Greens for at least four years, I don't have any insight into who who might run or not. But, um, you know, I think it's clear to, from an external perspective that um, it would be it would be career damaging for someone to do so. So even if someone had um, the ambition to be leader or wanted to, you know, um, go into what you guys are talking about, wanted to ensure there was a there was a contest. Um, if you actually care about your political career, I don't see why you would do it. <laughs> um, because Chloe, there's no one has a chance of beating Chloe, in my view. Um, she's a phenomenal politician. Uh, you know, in my view, she is a once in a generational generation talent. Um, she's got, um, you know, an incredibly sharp policy mind. Um, her ability to communicate uh, progressive ideas um, is, is, is awesome. Um, she's demonstrated the ability to build grassroots campaigns, uh, which is no um, easy thing in the Green Party. And, you know, I think one of the things that, um, and she has broad appeal, you know, obviously she's she's worked really hard at building a brand um, among her kind of base of urban, progressive, mostly, but not exclusively Pākehā um, supporters. She has appeal beyond that. Um, you know, you know, working class Māori, a lot of them like her. Um, um, Kopapa 
driven Māori like her. Um, and, you know, I'm sure I have less experience in this, but I'm sure there are middle New Zealanders, for want of a better phrase, uh, who also um, see the appeal because she's just so good at what she does. Uh, and so the thing that I'm looking forward to in terms of a, a Chloe Swarbrick leadership um, is that I think it really forces the other progressive parties and progressive movements to step up. Uh, and, you know, she's obviously talked about targeting Labour, um, trying to overtake Labour as um, as the biggest progressive party. Now, whether she's able to achieve that or not, you know, it's obviously a tall order, but if anyone can do it, it probably is Chloe um, alongside um, those around her. But, you know, even, you know, I've obviously worked for Te Pāti Māori um, over the last term, not, not currently, but um, I think it forces them to step up. And I don't think that um, they are, um, I don't think she's an existential threat to them in the same way that she might be to Labour. But still, um, it, it it means that people actually have to um, fight um, for even their base of support. And, you know, it kind of goes to another point that I was wanting to make, which is that, um, you know, one of the reasons I think that... I, often gets overlooked and I would say this but um in the last term one of the reasons I think the Green Party did run on such a strong um left-wing platform in the election was because there was a credible threat to the left into Pāti Māori and um that is something that has probably never happened before since the alliance days so um you know there was at least among chronically online progressive people um some who are you know, talking what, about who could you possibly be talking about <laughs> are they in the room with us now Jack? <laughs> um but even people a little bit less um obsessive as us perhaps were you know um openly considering shifting their support from the greens to to party maori um and you know i think the greens were able to hold on to probably a lot of that support while to party maori was also able to grow because they responded to that and actually you know um, ran a really progressive campaign, um, put out consistent, well-thought-out policies that were grounded in progressive ideals and didn't compromise from the outset. So anyway, it, it speaks to that 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 theory of change um, that actually um, we were also talking about earlier. Uh, Kyle, I think, was talking about earlier. You know, if if, if parties are out, trying to outcompete each other to be more centrist, then we're just going to get more centrism. So really what we need to aspire to is the opposite of that. Um, parties trying to outcompete themselves on the left. And I think Chloe, um, I have a lot of hope that Chloe's um, leadership will help that. And if if she can do that, then um, there might be no better um, success and, and, and outcome, uh, you know, because regardless of whether the Greens are able to overtake Labour, if Greens, Labour and Party Māori are all running on a strong left-wing platform, um, trying to inspire those people who have been disenfranchised in politics for so long um, and, you know, disenchanted with the boring neoliberal consensus, then, you know, that actually um, could be really exciting. And so I'm mm. looking forward to hopefully seeing that. Yeah, I mean, the ACT Party has never overtaken national, right? Um, and yet uh, we've seen a lot of that stuff come into the political discussion and is being implemented right now. I think one of the things to keep in mind with new leadership in the Greens as well, and you know, this isn't going to preclude us being incredibly antagonistic um, in the future should the outcomes not be what we hope them to be, obviously. But 
I think there is a sense that Shaw leaving just kind of gets the co-leadership out of the way of the party in a way that we haven't seen in a while. The party infrastructure maybe was often at odds with some of the stuff that Shaw was doing. Uh, you know, we talked about the uh, reopen nominations forum was about him kind of outright uh, going against party policy in some regards, um, or at least not uh, trying to implement it as strongly as people felt he should. And I think with Chloe and the co-leadership or really anyone else, um, the will of the party, which is very progressive com compared to what the caucus was able to do in government, uh, should shine through a bit more. The other thing to keep in mind is that it's not just a new co-leader, right? We've got one of their biggest caucuses, well, the biggest caucus they've ever had. And there are a bunch of really progressive new MPs, um, really fantastic people. Uh, and I I think Shaw was on, he was on the right of the party. And even even more so in relation to this caucus, he, he's not even close to representative of the other people who are in there at this point. And it would have been a fight for him to continue trying to do politics in the way that he does politics. We've seen that with, you know, multiple MPs getting electorate seats with very, very progressive backgrounds. Um, he was like credit to Shaw, like like Philip is want to hand it to David Seymour, I will hand it to James Shaw for stepping out of the way in Wellington Central. Well done. Good work because you like you couldn't win it, bro. And, and you clearly knew that and someone came along and won it uh, by being young and progressive um, and a fantastic organizer. Yeah, I, I am going to disagree with you slightly. Oh, on yeah, that, get it. Do it. I think I think James would have won it if he'd run. Um, if the same situation had played out that Grant stood down and Ibrahim ran and Chris Hipkins promptly threw him under the bus repeated times, I think <laughs> uh, Wellington Central Wellington Central was very likely to go green under those circumstances. Um, Tamitha obviously ran a fantastic campaign. Um, I don't know that James would have run the same type of campaign, but yeah, I, I think he could have taken it. Can I jump in very um, briefly? Yes. And, and I know that we're um, very long over time, but I, I can't allow this uh, conversation to end on a positive James Shaw note. Wait, so, wait, let uh... me finish my point and then I'll, I'll let you finish your point. Okay, and okay, that was okay. to say that the power centres within the caucus even are changing, uh, let alone within the party. And having a co-leader that actually holds an electorate is just really good. <laughs> yeah, I think but... we've, seen a, we've seen a shift in how the, how the party campaigns right and you know electorates is part of that but i just want to come back briefly to this point around um sort of internal democracy and contestation of uh the co-leadership and i broadly agree with both what stephanie and jack said on that but i think that there's still a you know there's still a process because as we know in the greens there's always reopen nominations on the ballot um so there's always a contest of sorts right and um chloe will still need to go around the party and have conversations and that th those are re really important times for the party because it's about the party coming together and talking about what chloe has presented um and how to what degree they want to embrace that or um to what degree they you know agree or, dis or disagree with that uh and so that is going to be really important for the party and just how many more members join the party to have that conversation is going to be a good indication of uh, what the future holds um, for the party's campaigning and, and direction. So, so that uh, yeah, there, there is still a contest of sorts, 
uh, around the direction of the Green Party, uh, even if there isn't another sort of person, um, you know, directly challenging Chloe. And I think that's important for us to to bear in mind. And so, because because it's important that we can still hold leaders to account, right? Even if they're uh, elected unopposed, they present a platform uh, and and they get the buy-in of the party, and that's how it works in the Green Party. And so, and then you know, as James found out. Uh, if you you know, run a campaign on uh, you know growing the party or quadrupling the size of the party and you know eschewing neoliberalism and so on, and then you basically um, don't do that, then uh, you can you can be re-over nominations against. So yeah, so it's important for those conversations to happen. Uh, and and yeah, I think that actually bodes well for the Greens. And just before we round out, because I can't let um, a bit of media snark go uh, unspoken, I just really have to shout out Radio New Zealand uh, for on Friday when Chloe had announced she was running. Um, they posted an article uh, saying that many consider her to be a front runner, huge if true, but this linked to another Radio New Zealand story, which just said Radio New Zealand understands she may be a front runner, And I'm like, was it too difficult for you to find one person who would say on record that Chloe is great? <laughs> like, I'm sorry. It does not take a lot of effort to find people who will publicly tell you that they love Chloe and want her to be a co-leader of the party. And apparently that was too high a bar for Radio New Zealand to figure out in two articles about her running. So Look, you just have to just have to understand that they're just so under the pump at Radio New Zealand. They're just so underfunded that uh, they can't even talk to anybody anymore um and they still have some level of journalistic integrity so without being able to talk to someone they can only ever say that they understand it because otherwise it would just be non-factual i mean they could just say it's really obvious just don't even <laughs> pretend that you've got sources telling you just be like yeah no shit yeah it's a pretty easy one how sad lucky luckily uh for our audience we exist uh to talk about this for over an hour Thank you so much you for joining me. You knew this was going to go long. You yeah, knew this yeah, was going to happen. I know. Oh. It, was, um, it was all faux concern uh, at the outset. And that's without the bonus episode that's just for Patreons where we just let Paul and Jack rip on all of their <laughs> internal <things. laughs> It's just an hour each, um, like, on camera, and it's just covered in broth at the end. Um, <laughs> all the most boring, boring internal Green Party detail that you could want. <laughs> Okay, people will pay good money for that yeah well um maybe one day <laughs> when we're better resourced thank you so much for joining me everyone Kia ora. thanks for having us Carl. Yeah. thanks carl thanks everyone and yeah. thanks for listening everybody um independent left media uh it's pretty great uh and you know you get some inside scoops now and then uh i think we're pretty good at what we do uh, if you think we are, give it give it a share. Let people know about us. Jump on our Patreon. It's in the summary right there. Give us some money. Help us out. You might have caught our midweek episode where we went through the ICJ ruling, uh, something that you wouldn't have seen anywhere else in Western media, and especially not in New Zealand. Uh, we really want to bring you uh, information and analysis and critique that you're not getting anywhere else. Uh, we need help to do that. So get on board. Join us as a member. Um but otherwise, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next week. If offices are denied, live in a pointless life, but I'm learning all your lessons. Fucking politics is no distinction. The words are now. It's paid with good intentions. And I'll admit that I'm at a loss for what to say when they criticize the cost you ought to stay. Cause I
I live amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking race 